Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book 5, Critical Spring. Chapter 1, Counter-Strike Why couldn't I just wound him in the arm? Mrs. Hendricks looked from face to face around a map table to see who agreed with her. Sergeant McCutcheon's head sank to his chest, as if suddenly exhausted. I could do that. Easy, continued Mrs. Hendricks. The other faces, uplit from the lamplight reflected off of the map, looked at each other, unsure as to how to respond to the interruption. You said it was only seventy-five yards, she continued. No problem. He wouldn't be able to shoot anyone if I, I, if I hit him right here. She tapped her gloved hand near her elbow. Easy, really. Martin didn't doubt her claim. Those around the map table probably didn't either. Her ability to pick off corn-thieving raccoons at night over a hundred yards was a local legend. The same keen eye and steady arms that made her Winchester the angel of death to varmints made her the best shot with the guard's heavily suppressed three hundred. She easily beat everyone else at the tryouts. Tyler, McCutcheon rolled his head wearily to look over at Mrs. Hendricks' adult son. Tyler and McCutcheon had served together in Afghanistan. We know you could, Mom, said Tyler. And you said we weren't supposed to kill anyone, Mrs. Hendricks added, with a mother's lawyer-like tone. No, said McCutcheon. I said our orders are not to kill everyone. I did not say anyone. It's only been a few weeks since this group attacked your town. Emotions could still be running hot. This is not supposed to be some rampaging revenge slaughter, he repeated louder for the rest of the group. My orders, that originate from the governor, by the way, not me, are to neutralize this camp of criminals and bring them to justice. I plan to capture this cracker character, alive if possible, with as little collateral damage as possible. Mrs. Hendricks tapped her glove on her elbow again. Right, so, if I hit him right here about here, and no, he could still sound the alarm. Your team is responsible for sentry takedown at the West Tower. He has to be completely out of action. Instantly. If he gets off an alarm of any kind, my team's safety will be in the toilet. See, Mom, you have to do it this way to protect these guys' lives, added Tyler. And, interjected her other son, Charles, if Kutch's team can get in and out quickly, no one else will get hurt. But if the whole compound wakes up from an alarm and starts shooting, yeah, well, who knows how many others might get hurt. Hmm. Mrs. Hendricks frowned and folded her arms across her chest. She was outnumbered, but still not convinced. As I was saying, said Kutch, once the blue team takes out their sentry at the west OP, and green team takes out theirs at the east OP, red team will cut the fence here. He tapped his pencil on the map. A heavy dotted line surrounded the isolated suburban development that the hoodlums had renamed Badaz, 
The fence was originally installed by the people of Nutfield to make the cluster of houses into a sort of prison camp to house their criminals. Once the criminals had been supplied with weapons, and Martin strongly suspected Quinn as the source, the hoodlums had turned their prison into a fortress and a base of operations from which to launch raids. This position will give us the least exposure for getting into this house here at the end of the cul-de-sac. Intel from our prisoners says it's Cracker's headquarters. The plan is we get in, find them, take them alive if possible. We'll use them to force the compound to surrender. So, said Mrs. Hendricks, when you capture their leader, they'll all start shooting anyway. She shot an I-told-you-so glare at both her sons. Kutch took a deep breath. They might, but they'll only have handguns. Intel says Cracker doesn't trust his mob, so he has all the long arms and ammo in the house with him. When we take Cracker, we also capture their armory. Now remember the contingency plan. Kutch drew two lines up to the dotted line of the fence. If things go south on us in the big house, and I call out brimstone, brown and gold teams take cover near the gate, here and here. Use your flashlights and firecrackers. Take a few shots to break some windows. Your job is to make it look like there's thirty of you assaulting their gate. But, and I can't stress this enough, stay behind cover. I don't want anyone exposed or hit. I don't know if they've got night vision gear or not. Stay down. They only have to think you're after their gate. Black team, said Kutch. Martin jumped inside. As leader of the black team, he knew his role well enough, but nervous energy made him edgy. After you've assisted blue team with the takedown, just like we practiced, your team moves up to this spot here. Kutch pointed to a spot where the red team would breach the fence. After we go in, quietly widen that gap in the fence. If we have to come out hot, we'll need a bigger hole. If things go well, your team can use the bigger hole to get your load through. Martin nodded and felt for the bolt cutters hanging from his belt. Kutch had explained the plan before, and it seemed straightforward enough. On the actual night of the operation, thinking about going inside the fence out bad as in a few hours, gave Martin a dry mouth. Okay, that's all for a refresher. Any questions? Kutch asked. People looked at each other as if they had many questions, but dared not ask. Good. Everyone form up outside like we practiced. Tonight's the night. Overcast and a strong wind in the trees. That'll help mask our footsteps in the snow. But, he stopped for emphasis, the wind will not cover everything. No talking. No clanking of your gear or anything. Check your gear before we move out. Team leaders, just follow the little red light of the caboose ahead of you. Team members, follow your lead. Winter winds seldom blew at night unless a steep warm front was moving in. That night, the wind alternated between whispering and howling in the treetops. It was good cover for snowshoe crunches in the woods. The wind stung any exposed skin. 
Even with his head turned away from the wind, Martin's eyes watered. He blinked rapidly to clear his eyes and to keep sight of the little red dot of light ahead of him. Trevor trudged beside Martin. The two of them had ropes around their waists, pulling a makeshift sled. Lashed to the toboggan were tin men, the generator, and boxes of gear. The prisoners, taken during the bad-ass raid on Cheshire just a few weeks earlier, said that Cracker seldom ordered patrols outside of the fence. Martin wondered if Cracker didn't want any of his people outside the fence perimeter because they might run away. From what he had heard, Cracker sounded tyrannical. Martin hoped the intel was accurate. He worried about whether they might get jumped. Could he get his carbine shouldered quickly enough while suited up in his bulky winter coat? With the dark and wind-induced watery eyes, would he be able to see anything to aim at? He took some comfort in the fact that red and blue teams were in line ahead of him. They ought to run into any trouble before his team did. Trudging in snowshoes was hard work and generated too much body heat. Martin wanted to unzip his coat, but wasn't sure he wanted to let the cold in. Pulling the laden toboggan was somewhat easier on the packed snow. Two miles of deep virgin snow would have wiped him out. Charles had been ahead of Martin in line, but dropped back beside him. I have your share of fish at the house. Two nice pollocks. He leaned near Martin's ear to be heard above the wind. Charles took careful, stomping steps with his aluminum snowshoes. He walked in the track to Martin's left. Gill says hi, by the way. He said to tell you that if you ever want to give up on farming for sailing, he's got a spot for you on Wendelin. Uh, thanks, said Martin, half-whispered. Why is he so chatty? This is no time for shooting the breeze. We're supposed to be quiet. Uh, Kutch said no talking, Martin reminded him. Pfft, he always says that before a mission, and yet he's always the first one to start chatting. Uh, well, it made sense to me. Oh, we don't want them to hear us. Ah, uh, we'll button it up later, sure, Charles countered. We're still a mile and a half out, and besides, I'm whispering. See how I'm whispering? As I was saying, our trips to Hampton have been working out okay enough. Gill has, oh, maybe a half dozen other sailboats working for him now. Even though fishing's not that great in the winter, hey, they bring in something. Why is he telling me all this, Martin wondered. He must be warming up to ask me for something. Uh, so, I, uh, I was thinking, began Charles. Ah, here it comes. Our runs to Hampton are okay, but Tyler and me are thinking we need to expand. How can you be thinking about trucking schemes, Martin objected. We're about to attack a fort. Shouldn't we be concentrating on that? Ah, man, you can't obsess before an operation. Worrying is just a dog chasing its tail. Gets your mind all locked up, Charles said. Actually, it makes you less ready when the time comes, more prone to freezing up. Better to keep your mind busy on other stuff. Martin rolled his eyes. Does that even make any sense, he wondered. But then, he's been to Afghanistan a couple of times, and I haven't. Maybe he knows. Martin guessed that Charles was going to ask him to build another gasifier, on spec, so that they could run two trucks. Martin really didn't want to take on any more work. His mind kept thinking about the danger ahead of them. Charles continued. 
At first, I was thinking we should rig up a second truck, you know, carry twice as much. But eh, shipping is pretty low margins, you know. Martin sighed. He didn't feel like making conversation about gasifier trucks, but the distraction of Charles's schemes was probably better than letting his worries dig him into a mental rut. Right, Charles answered his own question. So, I'm thinking of getting into production instead. My cousin Jenny married a Fraser, actually the son of the Fraser of G&F Farms down the road here from Nutfield. Fraser Farm is on the east side of the highway, Galthier Farms on the west. You probably bought stuff from G&F Farms farm stand, right? Uh, not really, uh, but I know their farm stand. The cold was starting to give Martin a headache. It made him less patient. He couldn't decide which was worse, battle worry or random chit-chat. He tried to focus his eyes on the little red light ahead of him. Uh, what is any of this got to do with ah, production? Yeah, I was getting to that. Just getting you filled in on the background. If you shopped at G&F stand, then you knew that they always grew frou-frou veggies like kale or chard or some other such rabbit food. Hipsters pay big money for that crap. Well, thing is, you can't use big machines on frou-frou veggies. Takes a lot of hand labor. Tom and Sean always hired a crew of Haitians to come up each summer and do all the manual work. Nothing against those Haitians. Hard workers. Always seemed happy just to have honest work. But now, with the power out, there'll be no Haitians coming, see? Tom can't plant that hipster food. I'm planning to talk him into planting corn. Or maybe wheat. Real food, you know, not that salad junk. Martin stared at the swaying red light ahead of him, as he thought. He had pondered his own future food problem many times. Sure, his household was on track to survive the winter in passable condition, but then what? If the siege continued, they would have to grow enough food during the summer to survive. Not just the summer, but next winter, too. This spring would be critical to a successful harvest in the fall. His three modest garden plots wouldn't grow enough to feed them all. One of his plans was to convert some of his front lawn into a new garden space. That would help. Another idea was to clear the young trees off of the back acre on the other side of the stream. He could plant a lot more back there. It would be a lot of work, but also a lot more room to grow beans. Hello? Are you even listening? Charles asked. You're still with me, right? Yeah, oh, good, good. So, I was thinking that if Tom could use one of his old tractors, he's got that old PTO two-row corn picker, they could plow and plant most of their fields with, like, corn and stuff if we built them a gasifier. We? Uh, well, yeah, it's my idea, right? That's worth at least one share. You'd get some shares for building it, of course. Shares of the harvest. Think of it as an investment. Tyler and I would work the production and transportation. Diversify vertically. Food is a sure bet. Everybody's got to eat. I saw Tom's name on the roster for Brown Team. I'm going to pitch him on the idea when all this is done. Why G&F? Martin asked. I thought you'd be fixing up your mom's farm. Well, that too, that too. But mom's fields aren't all that big, and she's got some CSA things cooked up in her head to help around the farm. Won't need equipment. That leaves Tyler and me some time to work other fields. Yeah, what do you think? Sounds like a winner. Uh, right? Uh, deal? Charles, this isn't really the time to be making deals. 
Ah, well, yes, fair enough, I guess. Uh, we're getting pretty close, anyhow. Uh, tell you what, you think about it, and when all this is over... The little red light ahead of them swayed back and forth urgently. They had just entered the hot zone. Martin reinserted an earbud into his right ear and turned on his radio. Charles half-jogged to rejoin the rest of Blue Team. Martin swallowed as best he could, but his mouth had gone dry again. His mind rehearsed his role and that of the rest of his team. The pace of the Blue Team ahead of them slowed to a toddler's walk. Walking slower produced less crunch from their snowshoes. The little red light suddenly veered off to the left. Teams to their alpha positions, crackled Kutch's voice through the earbud. Report when set. Charles, now equipped with a night vision monocular, caught Martin by the arm and whispered, Set up over there, five yards left. Having walked in the darkness for almost an hour, Martin could make out the dark shapes of blue team members unloading their sled. Martin patted Trevor on the shoulder. Five yards left, he whispered. One of the blue team handed Martin his baffle. The stiff foam mat stood about six feet tall and five feet wide when unfolded. He stood it up like a wall. Trevor received a similar foam barrier. The man pulled on Martin's elbow to place him where he wanted him. He positioned Trevor a few feet to one side. They both held up their mats to form a shallow V-shaped wall that did not meet at the apex. Holding their mats in place took constant effort. The wind wasn't as strong down near the ground, but enough to suddenly push or pull the big mats. Martin could see the others in the soft red glow of a small flashlight. They set up the gun rest and low stool. Mrs. Hendricks took her seat and settled her eye near the scope on the rifle. Charles came over to move Martin a few inches further to the left. Mrs. Hendricks would shoot through the gap between the mats. The huge suppressor on the rifle would dampen the report of the subsonic round. The big mats would deflect the report and the mechanical sounds away from bad as. Through his earbud, Martin heard, Green, followed a moment later by, Gold, White, Brown. Charles's voice added, Blue. They were all ready and in position. Martin glanced back at the rest of his team. They gave exaggerated thumbs up to be seen in the dark. Trevor nodded. Martin held the little radio close to his mouth. Black. Roger, all. Red in place. Go in ten. Column. Kutch's voice was a faintly voiced whisper. Martin could feel his heart rate increase. Despite the cold, his ears felt hot. From where he stood, he could just make out the observation tower between the tree trunks. It was too far away, and the lighting too dim, to make out the man in the tower. Martin counted down in his mind. He got to zero and tensed up in anticipation. He heard nothing through his earbud, or from the big rifle nearby. Both snipers were waiting for the best moments when their targets were in position and the wind temporarily still. Green down, crackled in his earbud. The wind died down for a moment, picked up a bit, then died down again. Martin could see Mrs. Hendricks heave a heavy sigh, position her eye closer to the scope, and sit very still. Kalak! Even though he anticipated it, the sound of the shot made Martin jump. 
he stood very still in case a follow-up shot was needed. Blew down, came Charles's voice through the earbud. Martin blew out the breath he was holding. He quickly handed his mat to Trevor, who tossed them both to his left. The two of them hurried back to their toboggan. Members of the blue team crunched past them, headed toward the fence. Mrs. Hendricks stayed behind to pack away the rifle and gear. Martin could see her shaking her head as she worked. The rest of the black team followed behind the toboggan. Among them was Denton, a man from northern Cheshire, whom Martin had never met before. His skill for the team was that of tattoo artist. The silhouettes of Charles's blue team could be seen crouching in the snow at the base of the chain-link fence. Red team had already moved through a small cut in the fence. Martin stopped his team behind several big pine-tree trunks ten yards from the fence. He unslung his carbine and felt for the safety. Blue team was back up for red. Black team was back up for blue. Martin hoped things didn't go so badly that he would be needed as backup. He stole glances around the tree trunk with his clunky Gen 1 monocular. It had little tactical value, but he brought it anyway. He clicked it on and off again, using the battery sparingly. Kutch said that no one should use any IR emitters in case the hoodlums were using night vision. In the grainy green screen, he could make out the back of the big house and the houses to the left and right. Nothing moved. The large house, at the end of the cul-de-sac, was where Cracker made his headquarters. Martin saw three short flashes of light from two of the downstairs windows. The muffled popping sound echoed much louder in his earbud. Brimstone! 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 shouted Kutch into his radio. Already? Martin thought. They just got in there. How could it go bad that fast? He braced himself against a tree, sights raised to the back of the house. Kutch is calling for brimstone, Martin whispered to Trevor. If they have to bug out, remember to watch for the little red lights in their chests. Martin's pessimism, or perhaps his faith in Murphy, shifted into high gear. What if one of them forgets to turn on his light? What if a guy's marker is on but hidden in a fold or, or under a strap? Martin wondered which was worse to shoot one of his own people by mistake, or to let an enemy get close and endanger any of his teammates. He decided that a bad guy would probably be shooting as he approached. Friendlies wouldn't. He resolved to wait for a muzzle flash before firing. Trevor tapped Martin's shoulder and pointed above the roofs. Staccato flashes appeared over the rooftops. A series of cracks and pops echoed off of the many walls. Martin could feel his fingers tighten around the grip of his carbine. His thumb played with the safety. Brimstone was a diversion operation if the capture of Cracker did not go surgically. Men captured after the attack on Cheshire told how Cracker, not trusting his own men, kept all of the heavier weapons in a room on the main floor of the big house. Cracker's inner circle controlled them. The rest of the hoodlums in the other houses were allowed only handguns, Capturing their leader and their armory would leave the rest of the compound with little firepower. In the face of a superior force, the only best option would be to surrender. That was the plan, at least. It was before things did not go surgically. The crackle of shots echoed off of the other houses. Upstairs! First floor! Take, to the, take the left! 
The voices in the earbud came in short bursts, like the red team members were running. Roger left! Hey, I can hear what Kutch is saying to his guys, Martin whispered to Trevor. I think his mic button is stuck on. For real? It was happening, Trevor whispered back. Back right, came another voice. Tango, tango, called Kutch. Front room! Don't move! Kutch shouted. Hands out while I can see him. Up, 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 hands out, I, I said drop it. Martin's earbud squealed with the sounds of women screaming. A shot fired, grunting and crashing. Grab out arm, hold him, said Kutch's voice. Now zip him. A burst of muffled profanity spewed from a new male voice. I'll get you, said the muffled voice before launching into more obscenities. The distant crack and pop of pistol shots and firecrackers from Gold Team provided a steady background track for the audio coming from within the big house. Flashlight beams crisscrossed the night sky. Brown Team! Barbarians! Go Barbarians! Kutch said clearly. A moment later, Martin could see the yellow flickering glow from Molotovs arcing toward the unseen gate. What? Trevor asked. Yeah, what's he saying? Kutch told our guys to step up the attack on the gate. I think they found Cracker. The rest of you, stand up against the wall. Hands high, on the wall. Feet back, spread out. Kutch's mic was still open. Spread out, spread out. No talking, no. Don't turn around. Hands on the wall. A fainter voice in the background said, The rest of the house is cleared. Four tangos downstairs. One dead, three tied. Calm secured. The stash... Kutch asked. Secure. Donaldson is on it. So we got him. What do we do with these women? I don't know yet. Hey, he's rolling. Stop him. Keep him away from... Several shots crackled in quick succession. Cease fire. Cease fire, said Kutch. He's down. Everyone okay? Is anybody hit? Martin could hear that Kutch was breathing fast. Indistinct voices in the background sounded excited, too but none of them were screaming in pain. Okay, jeez, what a stinking mess. Drag him out into the center. Is he dead? Yep, came a faint voice after a pause. Ah, crap, muttered Kutch. This makes Sorenda messier. There was another forty under the bed here, too, said a background voice. The sound of a woman crying and another swearing angrily rose in pitch. Quiet, all of you! shouted Kutch. Tyler, get him out of here. Take him downstairs for now. It's time for phase two, messy or not. Give me that bullhorn. I'll use this window over here. Go team, brown team, packs. Repeat, go packs, Kutch said into his mic. The firecrackers and gunfire on the other side of the compound trickled to a stop. Only a few random pistol shots from the houses lingered. A faint yellow glow from the fires at the gate reflected off of the house walls and the bare tree branches. No new bright arcs appeared. Silence. A slight buzzy sound boomed through the night air. Attention, you in the houses. Listen up. This is Sergeant McCutcheon of the New Hampshire National Guard. We got Cracker in control of his house including your stash of weapons. Your compound is surrounded. You are vastly outnumbered. Kutch paused to let the reality sink in. 
Kutch repeated his statement, speaking slower. More silence. Martin looked at Trevor, his face faintly visible in the reflected fire glow. So freaking quiet, Trevor said. Think there's figuring to hit back? Or, offered Martin, are they figuring to run? Keep an eye out. They might rush this back fence. Trevor's eyes grew wide for a moment. Man, I sure hope they don't run, Trevor muttered as he nestled the shotgun stock to his shoulder. I don't know if I could shoot somebody's all cold like. Kutch's bullhorn buzzed back to life. This operation was ordered by the Executive Council and approved by Governor Vincent. You are all under arrest. However, the Governor is offering all of you an amnesty of sorts for your crimes, but only if you surrender in the next ten minutes. I repeat, you have ten minutes to surrender in order to get the Governor's amnesty conditions. Those of you wishing to accept the governor's offer, dress for the weather, and report to the cul-de-sac in front of Cracker's house. Don't try anything stupid. I have two dozen sights on you. Dress for standing outdoors and report to the cul-de-sac in front of Cracker's house with your hands on your heads. Martin turned to Trevor to see the rest of his black team. He's going to call for us pretty soon. Get ready to move, Martin tried to sound confident. People prefer leaders with resolve. Inside, however, his stomach was in knots. His heart raced. They were about to enter a nest of criminals who still had handguns. The bullhorn shrieked with a momentary shriek of feedback. After ten minutes, my team will begin going from house to house and throwing in gas grenades. You can stay in your houses and die if you like. Makes no difference to me. The time starts now. Wait, he's, he's got poison gas? asked Trevor. Nobody said nothing about no poison gas. I don't think he has poison gas, said Martin, not quite confident. I thought I saw some tear gas. The prospect of drifting toxic gas added another twist to Martin's stomach. Maybe he's just bluffing, Martin thought. Yeah, playing Mr. Bad Cop. Hey, yeah, I sure hope that's what he's doing. Nobody had gas masks. Oh, gas masks. Martin felt a little better. He must be bluffing, Martin said. If there was any real poison gas, I'm sure we'd have seen gas masks issued. I didn't see any, did you? I sure hope you're right. I don't like any of this. Well, there you have it. We've started Book 5. As you can tell, the story in Book 5 starts off where Book 3 ended. So it's still winter, and this is just after the town had been attacked. So, now we resume the story. I'd like to give a shout-out to Anne and Jack for buying me coffees over at Buy Me a Coffee, and extend a big welcome to Jeff, the newest member of the Siege Club also over at Buy Me a Coffee. If you prefer Patreon, you can check out my page at patreon.com slash Mick underscore Roland. I certainly do appreciate you guys' support. <laughs>